0: This is Episode 71 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, How to Enrich Your Work Life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work the advice show where we talk about work-related issues or challenges and some ideas and suggestions for how to deal with them. I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and the host of the show, and I thank you for joining me in my quest to make our workplaces better and more welcoming to everyone. Let's do this. I'm really delighted to welcome a new guest uh, to the show. Uh, Michael Wing is joining us today. And on his uh, LinkedIn profile, he lists himself as teacher, scientist, traveler, Arctic enthusiast, and author of Passion Projects for Smart People. And we'll talk some more about that book in a couple minutes. A little bit more about him, he was born in Boston and grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. He attended the University of Chicago where he earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry. He earned a Ph.D. in earth sciences at our very own University of California here in San Diego, uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography. And he's the author of a dozen papers published in peer-reviewed scientific journals on all kinds of topics that we'll get into a little bit uh, today. And since 1998, he's taught at a high school in the San Francisco Bay Area, and most of that teaching has been in a particular academy that, he says, like the real world, rewards innovation, creativity, engagement, teamwork, and coping with ambiguity. So welcome to the show, Michael.
1: Thank you, Jennifer. Glad to be here.
0: I met Michael when I was doing some research about Basque sheep herders in the Eastern Sierra, so in the Mammoth Lakes and Bishop area in California. And I happened to run across this man who was doing this very interesting work on the, the shelters that the sheep herders had built up in the White Mountains and really analyzing their design to see if they were similar to other Basque, uh, similar structures in Europe. And so I wrote to Michael and said, hey, uh, can I use some of your work in my presentation at this history conference where I'm giving the uh, talk about the Basques in the Eastern Sierra? And he said, sure, that'd be fine. And I got to know a little bit more about his work through his website and then discovered that he'd written this really interesting book, Passion Projects for Smart People. And so one thing led to another, and I thought it would be really fun to have him on the show He's one of those people, and I haven't yet come across a name for people like this, but i run across people like this occasionally. They just seem to have all kinds of varied interests and never let their job kind of constrain them. And their zest for life just shows up in all these quirky and interesting ways. And I felt as though Michael was one of those people. And so I especially wanted to talk to him about work and so forth. And Michael, as I've learned more about you and and see how you really embrace this curiosity and how you have this uh, willingness to delve into new areas and really aren't constrained by what has come before, I was interested to learn in your book about your dad and how he kind of followed the, that same kind of uh, approach to life. And I wondered if you wanted to talk about him for a minute.
1: Sure, Jennifer. My dad went to law school twice when I was growing up, <laughs> which he 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 did it both times for fun. He has never practiced law or earned a earned a dime practicing law in his life, but he uh, he went to law school during the nights. He had a a day job in a, in a technology company, and then after he earned his his law degree, his his uh, JD. Degree, which is all the, the law degree that anyone ever needs to be a practicing attorney, a, a supreme court judge, a law professor, etc. He went back to a second law school nights again because he had a full time day job in technology, and earned a different law degree called an, a, a master of legal letters, a very obscure one mm. uh, in tax law. So that that will give you some idea of the kind of the kind of man he is. He. He earned a master's degree in tax law just for fun right <laughs> uh, And whenever I tell my students that, they, they look at me horrified. <laughs> uh, my dad worked his, his entire career for one company, Honeywell, and he was laid off at the age of 58. He had enough money, uh, but he knew he needed something to something to do and so he started taking courses in, in ancient. Uh, Greek at uh, Harvard University Extension School. He, he lived near nearby Harvard, and one thing led to another, and he ended up earning a master's degree at Harvard in classical art and archaeology, going on some digs in Greece, and became an expert on ancient coins. So there's this club in in the greater Boston area called uh, Historium Numorum. It's a, a club full of ancient coin experts, and it only has 20 members you can't no matter how qualified you are you can't join until there's a an opening and there's only an opening when someone dies so he's uh been very involved in that club but it took him about 10 years to earn his his master's degree in in art and archaeology because he you know he wasn't in a big hurry and he enjoyed hanging around harvard and getting to know the ancient queen community <laughs> so that's the kind of person he is
0: definitely a story of how one thing leads to another if you if you're willing to follow your curiosity and and uh, let things go from there,
1: yeah, he eventually became the go-to expert for for, for ancient Greek coins. So that essentially any any time anyone in the, at Harvard or really the, the the eastern seaboard has a question about an ancient Greek coin, they they go to him. He's not a professor. I think they gave him a an, a, a title of assistant curator and a and a parking pass. But he, you know he doesn't do this for money
0: parking pass pretty valuable.
1: Yes, in Cambridge.
0: One thing if I remember correctly from the book was that he also was given some huge collection that he had to sort through.
1: That's right, a wealthy donor left his entire collection to Harvard. That's why it took him 10 years. This guy left a, a large a very large collection of ancient coins to Harvard University's collection, but somebody had to sit down and catalog the whole thing. And cataloging, you know, there's hundreds of coins and each coin Essentially means doing doing a, an exhaustive research project on each coin to find out if there's any others like it anywhere on the planet. Mm. So you have to read up on the collections of all these different universities and institutions in Europe and so on. So he uh, spent quite a long time doing that.
0: One of the takeaways that I had from your book, or what I notice in the way you've lived your life, is that you don't allow your job to constrain you, that you've really used it as a jumping off place for different things. And since my podcast is about work, and I think a lot of people do feel constrained by their jobs and it makes them unhappy in their life in general that they feel stuck in, in some kind of job, especially teaching, you know, teaching such a very hard profession. And then, you know, a lot of people stay in it for a long time as you have, but end up being kind of burnt out. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you've used your job to, to stimulate all these exciting things that have happened to you.
1: Sure. Uh, you know, I, I I think if, if someone has been teaching for a, for a few years and is starting to feel kind of lackluster about it and and maybe a little bit of burnout, sometimes paradoxically, the, the answer is, is not to do less or to, or to, uh, withdraw more, but to, to dive in and, and do more. Teachers have access really to a lot of resources. Okay. So we tend to be well-educated and, and intellectually curious. Uh, we do have some free time, at least in the summers and on school breaks. We have students who will work for free on, a, on one of our projects, as long as the project is interesting. Uh, we have access to school equipment if, if, if that's needed. And as a teacher, I get to apply for some travel opportunities and grants that are in intended specially for teachers like me. So it's probably easier for teachers to raise small amounts of money for projects and travel than it is for most other people. And we don't need large amounts of money because we're not paying anybody else's salary. But most of all, people in institutions outside of schools like to say yes to teachers if they can. Hmm. There's a lot of goodwill from universities, government agencies, libraries, companies, parents, and so on. And a lot of people Feel like oh I'd, I'd like to be doing more for education, uh, but I don't know how. So then, if a teacher a- approaches you and says, you know, I'm a teacher at this school and I've got these students and I have a specific request. Here's what I want from you. The answer is very often yes. Hmm. You, Jennifer, you and I became acquainted through research that I was doing in at the University of California, White Mountain Research Station. When I first pitched an idea to them, the University of California in 2008, they came back and said yes the same day. Oh, wow. So our high school is the only school that uses the University of California's high-altitude research station in the in the White Mountains, uh, mainly because we're the only high school that's ever asked. Mm-hmm. I think that if you work for some institution, whether it's a company or a government agency or, or, or a school, you have an affiliation, and affiliations can open doors. People are more likely to uh, work with you give you what you ask for if you're asking as more than just yourself, but as, in some sense, a representative of your employer, too.
0: It's really interesting that you mention sometimes inspiration comes from kind of doubling down on something that you're feeling uninspired by. And it's a funny experience that you have when you're a writer or just a curious person. It's something often that on the surface sounds really boring Once you get into it, it just becomes more and more interesting. I don't know what that is about our brains that that makes that happen, but I can imagine that with your dad with tax law, that your students look at you like, oh, my God, forget it, you know, tax law. But then when you actually dig in and you start learning about tax law and its intricacies and it's funny how they become more interesting the more you know about them.
1: Well, one thing leads to another, and uh, I should should add that my father was studying – In particular, he studied the question of whether computer software was a taxable asset Mm -hmm. for a company. And, of course, he worked for a technology company, so it was definitely related to his job. I should also mention that my father worked for Honeywell in a time when companies made big investments in their employees. So even though he never earned a dime practicing law, either for himself or for Honeywell, Honeywell paid his law school tuition both times. And that was common in in those days for large companies to invest in their employees that way.
0: And doesn't that send a great message too? I think to an employee, when the company is willing to do that, that this it, this isn't a quid pro quo. This is because we're interested in you as a as a a pursuer of education, right? I, I just think there's something. That's right. Yeah, something very powerful about sending that message really to anyone, to your kids or to your students or, or anything that there doesn't have to be this trade off, right? It's not it's not
1: always self
0: interested.
1: Yes, I'm I'm concerned that there are probably not that many large corporations that would make that kind of investment these days.
0: Well, we're gonna change that with this podcast. All right <laughs> now, your book has a lot of specifics um from how to get involved with science projects to applying for grants and to even publishing a book and mm-hmm. what inspired you to write it
1: okay uh, that that that's a funny story uh because for many years, I was too busy leading the life I describe in the book to to write about it. Um, you know, I was teaching full time, I was raising my children, I was going on on trips overseas related to to research and and grants and um, uh, teacher travel programs. And I was doing in- independent research projects, sometimes involving my own high school students. Uh, what actually inspired me to do it was um, my sister in law, Jenny Grant, who lives in Seattle, wrote a book. And it was called City Goats. Uh, my sister in law, Jenny Grant, keeps goats in the city in Seattle. And it used to be against the law to keep goats in Seattle. So a neighbor turned her in. Oh. And instead of giving up her goats, she. She's very clever about publicity, and she convinced the city council to change the law.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So then a publisher approached her and said, why don't you write a book about keeping goats in the city? And she did. And it's a really witty, insightful, well-written, and very funny book. So it's a good read, even if you don't keep goats. It's called City Goats by Jenny Grant. So I thought that if she could write a book about such an arcane topic right? but <laughs> entertaining but really how many people need need a book about keeping goats in the city then maybe there could be a market for a, a more general book about how, how to how to leverage your job and your interests, and you know lead a more complete life so i actually had the idea while i was driving down interstate five back from seattle to san francisco and if you've ever made that drive, it's 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 a very long drive, but it's incredibly easy. Interstate Five is this wide freeway. It's flat. You're just driving. You just point the car straight for hour after hour. And I started to think about chapter topics mm-hmm. while I was driving. And I had nothing to write with. I had to pull off the freeway and tear a, uh, a page out <laughs> of a t- hotel telephone book to make notes on because I'm I'm not a big technology user. So by the time I was in San Francisco, I had an outline for for this book written on a on a a page of a phone book from a hotel. And then I started to interview people who had done some really unusual, interesting things. Um, and that, that became the basis of the book.
0: Oh, and that is such an interesting part of the book. The, the stories that you tell about the couple who collect um, trash, basically garbage mm-hmm. along the beaches and then make works of art out of them. It's, that's really very memorable.
1: Yeah, I've met some, some um, extraordinary people in, the, in this process. <clears throat> in particular, the, uh, maybe the one that sticks most in my mind, he's, he, he died recently. His name is, is Raymond Bander, and he collected 8,000 uh, skulls of various animals. Uh, he, he was a high school teacher during the day. He taught, he taught high school in the, in the East Bay in, near, near San Francisco for 32 years. But he had an unpaid affiliation with the California Academy of Sciences, which is Mm -hmm. our our local science museum. And that unpaid affiliation gave him a collecting permit. So he was able to do things like uh, pull the head off a a seal on the beach, whereas if you or I tried that, it would be illegal. Mm -hmm. So over the years, he collected 8,000 different skulls from every possible source of animal skull. He was sort of obsessive about it, but he ended up accumulating the largest collection in the world of animal skulls. And it's, it's led to a lot of really interesting research at the California Academy of Sciences as, as well as a, a huge exhibit.
0: I think that's another thing that I thought was interesting in your book. And it's a lesson that we learn occasionally or, or, or especially in small areas or small towns like Mammoth Lakes or Bishop, where one person can really make a big difference. And we just think in this whole wide world, oh, that couldn't be true. but But actually you get a passionate person behind something. And it, it is amazing how they can advance a whole field just on their own.
1: Yeah. The California Academy of Sciences put on a, a, a big temporary exhibit of, of his collection. And then uh, even today, if, he, if you that was years ago, but now if you go in there today, there's a permanent exhibit. So, you know, he, he, he left his mark on that institution, even though he he didn't work for them.
0: Right. Yeah. Left a legacy. Yeah. So as, as we... Uh, said before, I met you when I was working on this project about the Basques in the eastern Sierra. And so I learned a little bit more about your work. But let's talk about some of the other cool things that you've done, not just up in the extreme high elevations in the White Mountains, but other interesting places that you've been. So what what stands out to you as things that people wouldn't have expected you to be able to get involved with?
1: Well, I have a project on uh, sitting on the ground right now on all seven continents. Oh. I have I, I study cyanobacteria, which are these uh, microorganisms, they're they're a kind of bacteria very primitive that grow in extreme environments like mountaintops where it's very cold or hot deserts where it's very hot and dry or especially cold polar deserts, places that are desert but also near the north pole or south pole so they're both dry and cold. And uh, for about the last 10 years I've I've put arrays of glass and marble tiles i prepare them a certain way and i i I just I, i visit a spot or i get someone else who's visiting that spot to lay them on the ground in the desert and walk away from them and every few years i or somebody goes back and we measure the the number of cyanobacteria that are that are growing underneath the tiles cyanobacteria like to grow underneath translucent rocks They're they're photosynthetic. They're green. They make a green film that you can see with your eyes, which is what originally impressed me by that, because I'm a high school teacher, you know, and I thought it's kind of neat that you can see a film of bacteria without even a microscope. Right. So cyanobacteria like to grow underneath rocks that transmit some sunlight. So like quartz rocks or white marble rocks, the light in these these really harsh environments, the light passes through the rock and a little bit of light makes it to the bottom and cyanobacteria like to grow under them so if you walk around and on devon island which is in the canadian arctic or taylor dry valley in antarctica or the namib desert or the the peaks of the himalayas and you turn (laughs) over a white rock you're very likely to find a bright green film on the underside so in collaboration with some scientists at the nasa ames research center which is here in the in the san francisco bay region I've been studying how long it takes for a rock to become colonized. So I put my first artificial rocks in in the Namib Desert in 2009. Okay. And then the following year, I put some in the White Mountains. uh, And now I have collections of these rocks on all seven continents. And so it's a very long-term project. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's 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 going to, I don't have to do very much about this project. Uh, on In an average week, I do nothing. In an average month, I do nothing. But every now and then I visit one of these places or I arrange for some scientist who's going to visit one of these places to check on them. And so I have about 10 years worth of data so far.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like, well, I don't know, sort of reminds me of geocaching, you know, where you leave these things it's, behind you. and. yeah. Oh.
1: Yeah, go ahead. Jennifer, it's it's very much like geocaching because there's there's you know I have these GPS receivers that are oh. good to within a few feet and so it's like magic. You you're, you're you're back in this desert I recently returned to Namibia after 10 years away, right? And mm-hmm. so I mean I know I, I know where I left them. I I've, I've got the coordinates and mm-hmm. and there's always this magical moment when you're you're walking through this featureless desert plain and you're saying, "Well, according to my according to my GPS receiver, I'm there. And you pull your head up from the screen and yes, six feet from your toes, there it is. Isn't that something? You were last there 10 years ago and nobody's disturbed it except maybe an animal and, right. um, because these are very remote places. And so, yeah, I have I have these all over the world. Um, I have 10 sets on, on, on each of seven continents Some of them are in alpine areas. Some of them are in hot deserts. Some of them are in cold deserts. Some of them I've personally never been to. The ones in Antarctica and Australia, other people place there for me. Mm -hmm. But every one of them is near some scientific research station, except for one. So every one of them, there's there's someone I can call Mm. and say, hey, will you check on them for me?
0: And so you have this aha moment when you turn them over and you see how green they are? Is that?
1: Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, the White Mountain ones grew in, turned green in just four years. But White Mountains is not really a desert. The, the area around White Mountain Peak has s- several weeks every spring when it's both warm and wet and there's plenty of sunshine. Mm-hmm. The Namibia ones have not turned green in 10 years. They've started to become colonized. A, a scientist I'm working with has detected the right kind of DNA on their undersides, but they haven't turned green. Mm-hmm. And I imagine the Antarctica ones are even farther behind than that. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is a very long-term thing.
0: Right. And, and you've also been to the Arctic?
1: Uh, yeah, several times. I have sets on Devon Island, which is the, the world's largest uninhabited island. It's, it's between Baffin Island and Ellesmere Island. And I've been there a few times. And I know somebody who goes back there regularly. I also have a set in Svalbard, which is arch, uh, some ar- Arctic islands that belong to Norway. An uh, ex-student of mine put them there.
0: But you yourself have traveled to the Arctic, if I remember from the book correctly, under kind of unusual circumstances, if you can talk about that.
1: I was lucky enough to, to be in a um, program called Polar Trek. It's run by the National Science Foundation, and it matches teachers up with um, some sort of university group that's doing some kind of research in the Arctic. So I spent a month in northern Finland doing archaeology with, with a bunch of archaeologists from the State University of New York. And McGill University in Canada, and that was a great experience, and, and it, it actually led to a number of archaeology projects that I've done since then, including the one in the White Mountains.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. Again, one thing leads to another.
1: Yes, one thing always leads to another. <laughs>
0: well, if, I guess if you're willing to follow it, right? If you're willing to to pursue it.
1: Well, that's the funny. Th- I had this great month, you know, doing archaeology in Finland, but I was pretty. I wasn't very bullish on the idea that I could involve my students or do any archaeology afterwards. Archaeology, unlike just about every other field is very unforgiving to beginners. You you can't just go start digging somewhere. Yeah. You'll be arrested. You need a, a permit and, and only a licensed archaeologist with a good track record is going to get one, which I'm not. Mm-hmm. And so I came home and I thought, well, that was a neat experience, but it's probably just sort of a dead end. But then I found uh, out about this strange line of granite boulders in, in western Marin County on the Point Reyes National Seashore. There's this line uh, out out in the field, basically, of um, giant boulders. Each boulder, some of the boulders are the size of a, a refrigerator, and they're lined up for 800 feet. And so, no nobody knew whether they were uh, prehistoric or historic. Right. Um, you know, who had built them? Was it the, the, the Marin Miwok who used to live there, or, or was it someone more recently? And there was this rather fanciful story that was told that the Miwok had built it and it was called the Spirit Jumping Off Rocks, and that, there were, that when you died, your your soul was supposed to walk west on the line, kind of like a giant stepping stones and fly over the Pacific Ocean towards the Farallon Islands. And I looked at the line and I thought, I'm not so sure about that. And so <laughs> some students and I spent. Um, couple of years making really detailed measurements on the line. And we were able to, to show a pattern of of laying um, long stones lengthwise and short stones crosswise to maintain a constant width. And we were able to identify a few other things about the line that that really strongly indicated it was not prehistoric at all. It, mm-hmm. it didn't have the Miwok's fingerprints on it. It, it looked 19th century. Mm-hmm. And first person who, the first Anglo-American rancher who owned this land was, was named Solomon Pierce. He was from Vermont, and they, they built similar property lines in Vermont. So we wrote it up in an archaeology journal, and after some backing and forthing and, and arguing, we, we got that published. And there's a neat story about that. One of, one of my two students who uh, worked on this project, you know, we did this while, while they were still in high school, and the editor of the journal, the journal was called California Archaeology, and the editor of that journal was a professor at Cal Poly. And mm-hmm. this student ended up going to Cal Poly. So I oh. said, Emily, your first week at Cal Poly, I want you to go into Professor Jones's office and sit down in the chair and say, hi, I'm Emily. And I'm an entering freshman here, and you published my paper. Uh-huh. So she did that.
0: <laughs> That's really cool. And if I remember correctly, you actually did talk to some of the Native Americans, and their rea- yeah, to tell us what their reaction was.
1: Honestly, the Marin Miwok were kind of ambivalent about the stone line. Mm-hmm. They used it as theirs, and now they don't. Now they're, they 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 don't do that anymore, and they're not that interested in discussing it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, which to me seemed like yeah. Somehow we'd created this whole story around it that they weren't that bought into. That's right. All right. and So tell us about the Galapagos. I would feel bad if I let that go.
1: Well, uh, actually, all this started, that for the first seven years that I taught, I just taught my classes and went home. Mm-hmm. That's all. And, and I didn't do any special projects. Um, but in my eighth year, I just heard by random chance about this program called the Toyota International Teachers Program that sends teachers on study tours to the Galapagos, all expenses paid. And I thought, like every other teacher i thought oh you know that sounds like a lot of work to apply for it and and obviously i won't get it because it must be incredibly competitive which it is and um so i almost didn't apply because you know there's this trade-off of of work invested versus the disappointment of not getting it Mm -hmm. Uh, but i did apply and i i I was accepted and so for two weeks uh, i and um Two dozen other teachers from around the country, I was the only one from California, went on this tour of the Galapagos Islands, and we saw all the famous animals and, and plants. And we were also studying how, how people can live more sustainably on the Galapagos because it's a very fragile environment there and the human population is growing. But I had this funny experience when I was doing it, which is that there were two dozen teachers and we were all from different states. Mm-hmm. And some of the teachers seemed to know each other really well and be on very uh, friendly terms with each other. And I'd say something like, how come you two seem to know each other even though you're from New Jersey and, and he's from Nebraska? And I, they'd always say something like, oh, we were together three years ago in Germany, or oh, we right. were together two years ago in Saudi Arabia, or oh, we were together last year in this program in Los Angeles. And, and I gradually realized that there's a, a lot of programs that, that send teachers somewhere for free, and the same tiny number of teachers apply to all of them.
0: It's amazing, isn't get it? get
1: into a lot of them. Right. And so I decided right there to become one of those teachers. And so right. it, The two dozen <laughs> of us were, were hanging out in the airport at the end of the trip, and I just went around to the other 23 of them and said, tell me all the programs you've ever done or ever heard of, and I made a big <laughs> list. And I've been applying to them ever since. And, you know, it's not like I get every one, but I, I, I've, i like the other two dozen, I've learned how to apply for things. And so I, I do pretty well. Yeah, sure. But there's a, I mean, there's a lesson there because there's millions of teachers uh, eligible for programs like this, okay? And only a few hundred applied and only uh, two dozen got it. And, you know, it makes a big difference if you apply or if you don't apply.
0: Yeah, right, <laughs> yeah, right. You can't win the lottery without buying a ticket.
1: See, that's the thing. For me, applying for things that, that, are, that I'm eligible for and that are a good fit with my interests is like playing the lottery. I don't ever buy lottery tickets. I don't have to. Whenever I have that itch, that urge, I just apply for something mm-hmm. because I know the odds are much, much better. I'm not going to win the lottery, but if I apply for something, I have a 20% or 30% chance of getting it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's good to know the odds, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's right, that we sometimes defeat ourselves because we make assumptions about either our own specialness or our own ability to have things turn our way. And so we just don't try. It's a funny thing that we do that, that we kind of talk ourselves out of something right off the bat. Like, Oh, you know, I wouldn't get that.
1: I yeah. think we all do that.
0: Yes. it's, it's, uh, it's not helpful.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So I'm sure as you talk to other teachers, you encounter people who are feeling pretty burnt out because teaching it really is very, very difficult, very challenging work, especially over the long haul. Do you have any general advice for people who are feeling stuck in their jobs about ways that they might break themselves out of that rut?
1: Well, I think taking on some sort of extra project or or extra program um, gives you a, a reason to to appreciate the whole job more. You know what? I can't wait to get into school in the morning. I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm I I'm feeling really good about it. And I, that wasn't always true, but I think mm-hmm. the reason it's true is because I, I I perceive my job as a as a gateway to all this this cool extra stuff that I get to do, mm-hmm. and um and so that some of the good feeling from that cool extra stuff spills over into into my regular work. Plus, I've found ways to involve my students in that. If you have an employer, you have an affiliation, and if you have an affiliation, that means you have. Uh, an entry and in to talking to other people about certain things and collaborating with them and and, and maybe even asking them for favors and so i think that uh, teachers can leverage their jobs more than they do and and i know some other teachers who do and i know a lot of teachers who don't and the ones who do leverage their jobs to do extra cool stuff that's not necessary to to get ahead but it just it just um re- enriches their lives there's they're much happier all around both in their teaching and, and in their lives and I'm sure it's true for every line of work. One of the people I profiled in my book, his name is Bill Mozer. He's an engineer at a geotechnical company, and he's he spent his entire career essentially working on um, contaminated uh, soil and groundwater, industrial sites that have been been poisoned with various industrial chemicals. And the job's highly technical and and uh, would really sound pretty boring to most people, but by doing a little extra work and writing, publishing some papers about, about uh, what, what the data shows us, he's become um, an expert witness oh. and an adjunct professor. So he's taken a, a, a very, what would most people would think of as a very boring and highly technical and specialized job that really doesn't sound very interesting to talk about, right? I, I, I work on contaminated soil and groundwater at factories. But he's leveraged that to become an adjunct professor and also a uh, an expert witness in environmental lawsuits. So, mm-hmm. you know, lawyers are always hiring him to testify in an environmental case. Mm-hmm. And it's it's cool being an expert witness. It's the only the only job in the legal profession where you you get paid not to talk about the facts but to to tell your opinion. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> I want that job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get you get to talk
1: about your opinion and 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 it's also, uh, you know, very lucrative. I mean, he charges double his, 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 he's already well paid, but he charges double his going rate whenever he's being an expert witness.
0: Yeah, And I should mention that you go into that in your book also, that all these things are are cool and do enrich your lives and and make us happier. But they also often do open up avenues for more money. And that, that could also be
1: inspiring to people, I guess. I would say that just about every person I, I profiled, I profiled 14 or 15 people in my book, and I would say every person has earned a little extra money on these projects, or if not earned extra money, at least got some free travel in or, or something like that. Uh, the only person, and you know I, I need, I need to, to mention that my family and I live in my teacher's salary. So if I thought I had to be rich to do any of these things, I never would have done them. No, none of the people I profiled in passion projects for smart people are wealthy. There's maybe one exception. There's a guy with a forty foot sailboat that he keeps uh, in downtown San Francisco.
0: That might take some money.
1: <laughs> yes, that might take some money. And he uses his sailboat to uh, help out the. Uh, Point Blue conservation science and and make research trips to the Farallon Islands. So I pay out of pocket for some small expenses like tanks of gas, some field equipment, and things like that. But I also get free trips to interesting places. I get paid extra for my school by my school for supervising student science projects. Uh, I got I earned a little money writing this book. So my projects pay for themselves in the long term. Uh, when we take students to the University of California's White Mountain Research Center. We get our meals and lodging from the University of California, and it only costs us $50 per person per day, food included. So that, that's some, the kind of thing we can afford. Mm-hmm. One of the times I went to the Arctic, I flew for free on an Air National Guard training flight. So I would say that most of the people I know earn ex, a little extra income from these projects or at least get their projects subsidized somehow. And only the guy with the sailboat is spending a lot of his own money. But, you know, think, think about it. Most sailboat owners spend a lot of money without ever having to sh- anything to show for it, except that they went sailing. He goes sailing and he participates in research. <laughs>
0: Well, I can't resist here. I was reading your blog post about reading Walden. And so I'm sorry, I'm going to read some of your own writing to you here. So you said, what we learned from reading Walden is solitude is good for you, especially coupled with physical exercise. It focuses the mind and helps you appreciate the world around you. Thoreau never could have thought or written what he did sitting at a desk in a busy household. You said in your own life, you get your best ideas while hiking alone. Mm. And you said Thoreau was alone a lot, but you get the sense from his book that he rarely sat still. He was always walking somewhere. You mentioned, and this is what brought it up for me, living cheaply isn't the same thing as being poor. If it's part of a deliberate strategy, it can be very satisfying. So I, I thought of that when, uh, when you were talking about what these extra projects have done for you. They're certainly very enriching in some ways, perhaps not monetarily, um, but as you say, that doesn't necessarily have to be a drawback.
1: Well, most people in the modern world have enough money to live. What you need is is meaning, right? And I think that Thoreau was 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 a genius at um, finding meaning in his life.
0: Yeah, you also say here that it's okay to claim your freedom from the demands of and expectations of others, as long as they aren't your dependents. And you point out that Thoreau right. had no wife or children. And you talk some about this in your book, about the... Uh, uh, sometimes that your extra projects took you away from your family, but now uh, sometimes they're involved in your projects. I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit about that.
1: Sure, Jennifer. When, when I went to the Galapagos, you know, I left my family for two weeks, and I, my wife, had take care of two small children on her own for two weeks. And I felt a little guilty about that. It just wasn't enough guilt to stop me from going. Right. <laughs> but I think that lots of people struggle with that and, um, and women struggle with it more than men. And, uh, you have to remember the big picture and the, the big picture is that children have small children have immediate needs to be fed and taken care of and loved and hugged and picked up at school and all that stuff, but they also have longer term needs. And, and part of that is, is, to, is to see an example in, in their lives of an adult who's leading an engaging, interesting life and, you know, making personal progress. And so I think that mothers especially need to, need to, to recognize that their children and especially their daughters are going to remember the projects they did while, while, while they were growing up. They're gonna that it is the children are gonna remember anything interesting their parents were doing, and and that that could in, in turn inspire the children to do something interesting. So when I first started leading student field trips to the White Mountains, the by the way, the Shepherds Project is the the fourth project we've done up there, not not the first. We started going to the White Mountains in two thousand and seven for a different reason. And when I first started going taking students to the White Mountains, my own kids were too small to go. I was a, a high school teacher and I was leading high school trips and we were the only high school that used the facility. So I certainly wasn't going to bring along a a fifth grader or something like that. It wouldn't look good. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as my children got older, they started to participate. I brought my first, my son first when he was eighth grade, but he was a big eighth grader. I thought he'd he'd blend in with the high school kids and nobody would know that he wasn't in high school yet. Mm -hmm. And so, um, both my children became very involved in the projects we do in the white mountains. This, uh, project we're doing on, on the Boss Shepherds Huts, I'm going to publish it in California Archaeology. It's not been accepted yet, but I intend to publish it in a journal called California Archaeology. And my daughter, Elise, is going to be one of the co-authors on that paper with me. How cool. So my own kids have been very involved in the White Mountain projects, and um, they still are. And so sometime, sometimes you can incorporate, you can um, integrate your family into your, into your projects and those two artists that you mentioned, uh, Richard and Judith Selby Lang, they're a husband and wife team. They each have their own art projects, but then they have this shared art project that that involves uh, beach uh, beach plastics.
0: I think that's really profoundly important. What you said about modeling a kind of life for your kids, and really even for people around us, right? I mean, I, I think having learned more about you and having read your book and, and had the opportunity to talk to you, I just think it's very inspirational and that we, we, if we embrace that we have the responsibility to, to live the life that we think would be helpful to other people, I just think that that's really a fantastic um, undertaking as a human being.
1: The other thing is that while I was writing the book, and that took some time away from my family, but I noticed that both my children started to write a lot themselves.
0: Oh, right, yeah, exactly. And, and
1: uh, my daughter is now a serious writer. She writes much more than I do. Yeah. So, so you never know. I, I'm not. I cannot take credit for my daughter's becoming a writer. She probably would have done that anyway. But it didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. And now we now we have that thing in common that I published a book and she's published some stuff too.
0: No, I think that's really great. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do and the inspiration that you provide to us. And I wonder if you would like to take a couple minutes to tell the listeners where they could find out about the book or follow your work or uh, generally be in touch with you.
1: Uh, Sure, Jennifer. The the book is called Passion Projects for Smart People. Uh, It's published by Quill, Quill Driver books, and it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everywhere books are sold. Passion Projects for Smart People. And it was published in 2017. I also maintain a website, michaelrwing.com. R is my middle initial. Mm
0: -hmm. Good. Thank you for that. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking to you.
1: Uh, Equally, Jennifer, I've enjoyed talking to you. You're very welcome.
0: That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work. If you have a problem at work that you would like to submit to the show, you can do that at my website, discreetguide.com. That's D I S C R E E T. Spelling matters. Anyway, send in your issue. We'll treat it with confidentiality and respect and see if we can give you some tips or tools. You can also sign up for my mailing list or The Pergola, a digital publication that comes out every other month, as well as get information about training programs, books for sale, individual consulting sessions, and all kinds of articles and jokes and resources, all for us to work better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, and thanks for listening. New shows will be available every Tuesday, so tune in so you can hear more about coping with trouble at work.